1: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, February 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi State Conference of the NAACP goes to the Capitol to sway lawmakers on legislation that could impact the state's black communities. Then we continue our look at CDC, a report on youth's mental health, especially the effects on marginalized groups. Plus, a quirky museum adds a special HBCU line to its collection. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi State Conference of the NAACP is meeting with lawmakers at the state capitol today. Top of mind is a collection of bills that would grant the state more control over the city of Jackson. The most hotly contested piece of legislation is House Bill 1020, which would expand the Capital City Improvement District and establish a special court jurisdiction with appointed judges and prosecutors. State Executive Director Charles Taylor says such a move would take voting power away from the majority black population of Jackson.
2: It is an anti-democratic bill, and we are all about pro-democracy. If you look at it, you know, uh, currently in Hines County, the judges that that are representative of Hines County are elected by those uh, citizens of Hines County and, and the city of Jackson, um, and as well as the district attorney. What HB 1020 would ultimately do is dilute dilute the voting power of those Hines County residents and particularly uh, you know, with Heinz County and the city of Jackson being overwhelmingly majority black. This is an attack on, on on voting rights for Black folks in the state of Mississippi. You know, is is you know this is that that bill makes us nervous. But also think about that you know it's not just about this one bill, H, HB 1020. It's about the package of bills that we've been seeing uh, across the, the last few legislative sessions, where they have taken this district, the CCID district, that was originally designed to pave roads. And weaponized it to be uh, a champion for anti-democratic policies and practices. And so, you know, as we look at uh, Senate Bill 2089, which will regionalize the authority of the the Jackson Water System, this is another bill that we oppose. And you know, the unfortunate piece of this is that it, the name is misleading. The bill doesn't create a regional authority for the water systems throughout the Jackson Metro area, it just creates a regional authority for folks to control the water system in Jackson. So how is it that you have a, a, a asset that is solely owned by the city of Jackson, but you want the voting power and the, a governing power of that, of that water system to be controlled by uh, those who are also in the suburbs.
3: I wanted to talk about the CCID that would create a district that encompasses a part of Jackson that is majority white in a city that overall is majority black. What do you think it says for the state to be trying to
2: intervene in Jackson this way? It's dangerous. And, you know, it's funny because for a state uh, that's always talking about the federal government not having too much oversight, for uh, lawmakers who are uh, adamant about no big government This is the quintessential example of big government and is actually uh, a quintessential example of government oversight. And it is inherently racist. What they're trying to do is functionally create a city within the city of Jackson. Right now, Jackson is is an 80 plus percent uh, majority African-American city, which means that the majority of our candidates that are elected in Jackson are are, uh, black preferred candidates. And uh, so so hence many of those folks are African American, uh, with it being said the same thing in the county. This is a way to control a piece of the city without having to speak to that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about it is that you know what what it creates is a scenario where I am a citizen of Jackson. If something happens to a citizen of Jackson now. Well, dealing with the police in terms of uh, JPD, we can call our mayor, we can call the police chief, we can call our city council members. You know, I I tell you, you do this to Jackson today, what happens to the rest of the state state tomorrow? The other thing is, this is dangerous because if this creates if we create this kind of precedence in Mississippi, this is not gonna stop there. You're gonna see the same thing happen in cities like Birmingham and, and Alabama. Or cities like Atlanta and Georgia, um, where you have state, the state trying to come in and take over control just because they don't like the officials um, that the citizens have elected. That's not how government works. And so what the CCID bill is doing and, and, and the package they're trying to put together is not only uh, uh, diluting voting power, it's, it's disrespectful to uh, Jackson residents, but it's also uh, counterintuitive to everything that our democracy is built on. It is the definition of anti-democratic. Anti-demo-
3: How do you see a lot of these bills that are based around Jackson coming back to the idea of race?
2: Well, here's the deal. So you have the CCID, which is which creates a it's a majority white district. In an overwhelmingly majority white city, there's no coincidence that is these areas that they want to do one to create the CCID from the first place in terms of beautification, and then secondly, when they weaponize it to say we want to create a court where these individuals can have this kind of control. It, you know it's, if, if Jackson was a majority white city, we would never have seen something like this. If Jackson was a majority of white city. What you would likely have seen from our legislators is trying to do things to support the city. What this is fundamentally doing is taking the voting power out of black folks, out of the hands of black folks. So, their solution, once again, in our red state with our very checkered past, is to say, let's put this on the backs of black people, let's sacrifice african-american voting power let's sacrifice democracy and it's and it's and it's unfortunate
1: that's mpb's kobe vance speaking with charles taylor taylor and the naacp are also advocating for other legislation bills he says that would help all of mississippi and he wants lawmakers to take a less adversarial tone towards the capital city
2: stop looking at Jackson as your stepchild. Look at Jackson as your capital and city and invest in it. Some of these things would have, you can do that would have impact on the entire state. One expand Medicaid. The expand Medicaid is a billion dollars more that comes to the state from the federal government, but it helps to support our hospitals. Because quiet as it kept, uh, you know, you have rural hospitals dying across the city, I mean across the state, but it, the, our, our hospitals within the city of Jackson are struggling because Medicaid hasn't been expanded. You know, uh, let's invest in jobs and education. Let's fully fund education in the state of Mississippi. If you fully fund education in the state of Mississippi, you would, you know, instantly we would see great grade-level improvements uh, and, and, and investment in our in our uh, 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 public schools across the state. This would have huge implications on Jackson.
1: Charles Taylor is state executive director of the NAACP. Coming up, we continue our look at a CDC report on youth mental health, especially the effects on marginalized groups. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast.
1: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. More teens and adolescents are exhibiting behaviors that point to struggling emotional health and stability. According to a new study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, nearly all indicators of poor mental health, suicidal thoughts, and behaviors increased between 2011 to 2021. Dr. Jahan Sebkan is a physician-psychiatrist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. In part two of our conversation, we examine the profound mental health effects bullying and harassment have on marginalized communities.
3: There's a huge disproportion between, you know, equality and equity and inclusivity. I think as a society, we have definitely come a long way, but there's still definitely more work to be done where inclusivity is probably the most prominent aspect that I've noticed. Uh, I see this display quite a bit in, you know, the patient population that I deal with. And uh, I see this quite a bit on the this schooling side as well. Because um, we do have some, I have some trainees that will go out to the schooling and then when they come back, you know, we would have discussions and they, they're also noticing that as well. Especially in the high
1: school side. Are you noticing bullying uh, it, right now? There's the controversy over a bill in the legislature about the trans community and preventing children under the age of 18 from having um, surgeries and other things that would affect their sexual identity. Are those things happening in the classroom? In schools also challenging girls
3: yeah definitely you know it comes up um, and we definitely deal with with these uh, with these individuals as well in our clinics and you know based on our conversations our interactions with them that that's definitely uh, I would agree with that statement that that's again the lack of full or you know whole Inclusivity is still missing. Uh, you know, it is good to hear also that there are some schools that are making accommodations, but again, there is this isolation that is happening, whether that's intentional or unintentional. That's regardless of that fact, the isolation is still there.
1: In this report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, they mentioned school connectedness can help with mental health. Do you think that that is the case? Yeah, absolutely. I
3: think that's a great idea. Um, uh, You know, and I'm glad it's kind of more of a vague idea because there's so many different aspects of connectedness that can be implemented. Uh, You know, connectedness from the security to the, you know, uh, teachers, to the principal, to the counselors, to anybody that's, you know, on the medical side, we've, we've seen this quite a bit. And uh, as part of our treatment plan, we oftentimes recommend, you know, parents to, to reach out to the school and work on an IEP. When I hear school connectedness, I see kind of a, a subset or a version of an IEP. IEP stands and, and, for individualized Education you. Plan. And uh, that's, you know, that it's an accommodation that the schools can offer to individuals that have mental health issues or uh, any medical issues. Now, this connectedness aspect, I kind of, you know, I'm paralleling that or comparing or making an analogous comparison that I can see how this would be offered, if it was offered to everyone rather than an individual, but with the, you know, with modifications and with adjustments, like having a... Bit of individuality. I know this. this sounds strange because I'm saying let's let's have this general plan, but there's there's certain aspects that can that can be individualized if that makes sense.
1: In talking about this, we talked about the bullying when there are victims of bullying. But before we go, those that bully, what is going on that they think that they can just go around beating up kids and it's all right? Yeah, that's a great question. So let me put it this way. Let me tell you about my
3: experiences. But when I come across uh, people that identify themselves as bullies, they're usually, you know, I, I have come to the conclusion that violence definitely begins begets violence. Uh, that's probably true most of the time where they have seen that behavior being displayed to them, or they've experienced it, or heard about it, and. That's one one possibility, another possibility is maybe they have an underlying mental health issue because oftentimes in children mental health issues may present as fear of a mood or aggression or agitation, and that leads to a proactive type of uh, you know uh, behavior so in terms of bullying and aggression and violence we we say is is this passive aggressive is this proactive and so I just wanted to define that a little bit, um, and then additionally, the the bullying may have a secondary gain, or just you know doesn't have the appropriate disciplinary information. Um, an example of that may be that you know the bully may not have learned from their caregivers, or, or may not have gotten the concept that it's not okay to you know abuse somebody physically, mentally,
1: or, or verbally, or whatever way. Well, Dr. Khan, the Interim Director for the University of Mississippi Medical Center Division of Child Psychiatry, and we just appreciate your time in speaking with us about this important issue. Yes, ma'am. Coming up, a quirky museum adds a special HBCU line to its collection. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory, and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A niche museum in Wisconsin is helping fans of historically black colleges and universities show their support. The National Bobblehead of Hall of Fame is launching the first of its HBCU series this spring. Phil Schuyler co-founded the organization in 2014 after a decade of passionately connecting those bobbleheads. That later led to the desire to produce more of the wobbly-top souvenirs for fans that didn't have a distinct bobblehead of their own. Schuyler spoke to our Michael Guidry about the history of bobbleheads and what led him to start this collection.
4: So the first officially licensed uh, bobbleheads for sports were in 1960. A uh, company made a series of all the different baseball, basketball, football, and hockey teams in the in the professional leagues, and those did really well. Uh, you could buy them at corner stores or at stadiums, and uh, people started to collect them. Kids would sometimes play with them and and break them, uh, but yeah, they became a pretty cool collector's item and were popular throughout the 60s and sort of faded away in the 70s and 80s, but then rose in, in popularity in the late 90s and early 2000s, and have been the, the number one promotional item at stadiums ever since. And continue to be very popular for people to, to purchase and give as gifts or add to their collection.
0: As bobbleheads have become more popularized, is, is, is when any one of the, the major sports kind of dominated uh, bobblehead culture, uh, or is it kind of you know equitable across all all major sports?
4: Uh, baseball is definitely the leader when it comes to babbleheads, and that's mainly because there's just so many different leagues and teams with all the minor leagues and independent leagues throughout the country and uh, also the longest season of all the sports. So you know, football only has 16 games, and uh, they don't really have you know, a lot of promotion. So baseball has continued to be the sort of the standard bearer when it comes to babbleheads, and the largest babbleheads are definitely in the baseball category.
0: And now I'd like to shift to a, a, an initiative that you, at the the Hall of Fame and Museum, have started with recognizing HBCUs and this collection of HBCU bobbleheads. Uh, where did that idea come from, and and where are you hoping to accomplish with it?
4: Yeah, so as we look, you know, on on a daily basis of what new bobbleheads could we, uh, you know, get into to motion uh, a couple year or so ago, we realized that there hadn't been bobbleheads for any of the HBCU schools, really. Uh, so both at the retail level or as a giveaway. So we thought that seemed odd. And so we did some more research about uh, the different HBCUs and tried to look into why there hadn't been bobbleheads and couldn't really find a, a good answer. And we're a licensed producer of most of the co- a lot of the college bobbleheads. And so we started to add the HBCU schools and start the art process for those schools. And so, yeah, it was really sort of uh, surprising to us that there had never been bobbleheads uh, for all the HBCU schools. And so we wanted to change that, and, uh, you know, it's a, a win-win because gives fans and alumni and students a source of pride with the bobbleheads and also uh, benefits the school because the percentage goes back to the school for every bobblehead that's sold.
0: Now, this uh, initial series focuses on 13 HBCUs. What was it like um, selecting those thirteen, and and then what was the what was the the, the back and forth the communication with university leaders like uh, as as you uh, undertook this?
4: Yeah, so we did quite a bit of research on the HBCUs and tried to select you know sort of the, the largest and also the most historic and some of the ones with biggest fan bases and uh, get a really good selection uh, both you know geographically split as well so there's not just uh, you know schools in one area it's really a broad selection of schools and so yeah we selected a little more than 13 but the first series has 13 in it we have several more in the works so we'll have a second series coming out soon uh, for more schools and hopefully additional series after that but yeah it was a pretty smooth process uh, with the collegiate bobbleheads we just um, submit a request to add the schools and receive a response back and sometimes we have to provide a little more information And then we submit art and get feedback on that art. Uh, So it's been a seamless process, and really the most feedback has come since we released the Bobbleheads, which was on uh, Friday, February uh, 17th. And we've received just a lot of really great feedback from uh, schools, from students, uh, alumni, members of the community, just uh, even, you know, things people thanking us for, for creating the series, which is something that we don't always see when we. Produce new Bibleheads
0: so the, you mentioned the the process of the artwork how much did how much did you cater to to, to each school when it came to developing the artwork?
4: yeah so every is completely customized uh, to the school so it has uh, the school's mascot with the colors and logos and uh, really each one's a unique piece and so it's not something that's just a like a cookie cutter tiger or uh, ram or something it's the actual Mascot from the school with the colors and logos and uh, the poses that the mascots make. So, yeah, it is really, uh, you know, a unique item and something that I think this, the fan uh, bases and communities can be really proud of.
0: All right, well, Jackson State University, the, the largest HBCU in Mississippi where, where, where we're stationed, is part of that uh, initial series. But I have to ask, are there plans for for some of the others? Um, We have Alcorn State University, Mississippi Valley State University, Tougaloo, Rust, some of the smaller ones. What does the pipeline look like for continuing the HBCU series?
4: Yeah, it's pretty robust. Um, A couple of the ones that you mentioned are in that pipeline, so it's going to be exciting for fans in the area uh, because we'll continue to release them and uh, have additional series and Yeah, a couple of the schools don't have mascots, unfortunately, so we're trying to see if there's something unique we can do uh, with those schools. But most schools have mascots, so it's uh, something that we can do for, uh, you know, most all of the HBCUs, including the smaller ones. And so, yeah, we'll continue to to work through the list and continue to add new schools and uh, and create new bobbleheads for the fans out there because we've definitely seen that there is uh, demand there and uh, people are really enjoying seeing their – school and their mascots turn into bobbleheads.
0: All right. Well, Phil Scalar, co-founder of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum, uh, thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing what comes next in the HBCU collection. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it.
1: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.